This is the Bigger Pockets Podcast Show 466. And it's easier when you're like, hey, what bill do you want to pay? Okay, you found a house that, that cash flows you $200 that's going to cover your phone and your water bill or whatever it is, then yeah, pull the trigger, make the offer. Like that, it made the criteria that much easier. And, and then you just just go through your next bill. Like, okay, well, this one pays for your electric bill and the next one's going to pay for your water bill. But hey, we made progress and let's just keep the ball rolling, the momentum going, the flywheel, you know, it's just sort of feeds upon itself after a while. You're listening to Bigger Pockets Radio, simplifying real estate for investors large and small. If you're here looking to learn about real estate investing without all the hype, you're in the right place. Stay tuned and be sure to join the millions of others who have benefited from BiggerPockets.com, your home for real estate investing online. What's going on, everyone? It's Brandon Turner, host of the Bigger Pockets podcast, here with my co-host, Mr. David Green. David Green, I got no good nickname for you today. What's up, man? How you doing? There is no better nickname than your best friend and your co-host. I love <laughs> okay. this job. My bestie, best friend in the entire world, David Green, here on the podcast again. Man, it has been a... Uh, Crazy few weeks, I know, for you on closings and me. I'm closing like next week on my condo here. So real estate's real estate's rocking right now, huh? I closed on two condos in Hawaii. I'm closing tomorrow on a retail center in Minnesota. I am hiring an office manager for my real estate team. I've got like 10 agents that are all ready to crush it. And we just need someone with a little bit of experience to help train them. The loan business is going well. This is It's frankly just a good time to work in real estate, right? You got to make hay when the sun shines because it won't always be that way forever. Let me ask you a question, though, completely unrelated. Then we'll get into today's show, which was phenomenal, by the way. I can't oh, yeah. wait to bring you guys this show. But uh, what do you think of crypto right now? It's crazy. It's all over the news. It's, it's all everyone's talking about is crypto. What's your crypto thoughts in 30 seconds or less? Go. My thoughts are they have more to do with the way that the government's just creating stimulus. They're, they're not printing dollar bills, but they're buying bonds, and it's pushing money in the economy, and it's like pushing water under the surface of the earth, and it has to bubble up somewhere. So people are losing confidence in the dollar and you're seeing asset-based inflation is kind of running rampant. So real estate obviously is going up in value, but you also see NFTs, crypto, baseball cards, kind of weird stuff. You wouldn't normally expect to see this being influenced by this water as it bubbles up and it has to find somewhere to go. So I think that as long as there's a scare of the overall strength of the dollar, things like crypto are going to do really well. And if that shifts, you'll see that stop really fast. Are you buying any? No, because okay. I only invest in things I understand. Ah, very smart. Very smart. I did buy $5,000 worth of Bitcoin back when it was much lower. And now it's worth, I don't know, like 20 thousand or something like that. But I literally bought it as a lottery ticket. Like I was like, this is fun money. This is like play money. I might lose the whole thing. I might go to zero, but it might go to a million. So it was an ace. What's the word? Asymmetric bet. It was kind of like, it could go really significantly higher or not. Uh, that said, speaking of lottery tickets, today's show, one of the, the our guest today is Alan Corey. And Alan brought up a really great term in today's show. I want you guys to listen for it when we get to that point where he talks about like the imaginary lottery ticket, I think is what he called it. Is that right? And that whole concept was so good. We talk a lot about that. We talk a lot about risk. Uh, we talk about paying off debt. Should you pay off credit card debt, student loan debt before investing? We talk about that. We talk about should you become a real estate agent to invest in, uh, you know, to get started. We have a lot of good stuff there. I mean, he made a million dollars on one, like, actually, I think he told me three times in his life, and we covered two of those stories today, where he made over a million dollars on one trip, like one deal. Uh, so you're going to learn about a couple of those today. And they're not like that crazy. Like it's stuff that anybody here could probably pull off. So that and more to come. But first, let's get to today's quick, quick tip. tip. 
Today's quick tip is nice and simple. I put together a, I don't have a title for it yet. We'll have one here shortly, but I put together an interview with a CPA who specializes in taxes for real estate investors and an attorney who specializes in asset protection for real estate investors. And I put together this this, a little over an hour long. It's like an hour and 15 minutes, sit down and we cover everything on this video. Uh, That is a new Bigger Pockets Pro perk. So if you are an existing pro member, make sure you go into your pro membership. I think it's like go to your picture on the corner, drop down, and you'll find all your pro perks in there. Mm. Uh, that's per perk in there, perk in there. And also, if you become a Bigger Pockets pro member in the future, uh, you'll get that video as well. So that's your quick tip. Check it out. Remember when you had to pay to get a leads phone number? It was like the dark ages until Deal Machine made skip tracing a thing of the past. Now, with your Deal Machine plan, you'll get unlimited access to phone numbers and contact information for no extra cost. That's right. Get high quality, reliable information trusted by leading financial institutions, all fully compliant with the federal do not call list. Explore over 150 data points, including age, gender, marital status, occupation, and a ton more. Trust me, this is the data you need for off-market deals. With new filters, people flags, and color-coded phone numbers, lead management just got a ton easier. Ready to step up your investing game? Sign up for a Deal Machine plan today and gain immediate access to this unlimited treasure trove of contact information and phone numbers. Just head to dealmachine.com bp. Transform your lead generation and deal-making strategies with Deal Machine. Sign up today and start exploring the unlimited possibilities at dealmachine.com slash BP. This show is sponsored by Airbnb. Did you know that I turned one of my first homes into an Airbnb? It's true. And it even helped me get the extra income I needed to launch my real estate career. So if you want to try your hand at making even more income with your property, Airbnb is the place to be. Your home might be worth more than you think. Find out how much at airbnb.com slash host. Passive income without the property headache? It's possible. There's a way to invest passively in real estate and get monthly income without any tenants, maintenance, or property management. The Wealthy have been doing this for years, and if you're an accredited or high net worth investor, you too can collect cash flow without the headaches that come from owning rentals. How? By investing in a private real estate fund with PPR Capital Management. PPR's co-founder, Dave Van Horn, wrote the book on real estate note investing for BP. But he's not just investing in notes. Dave and his team also have an extensive background in commercial real estate. And with PPR Capital Management, they're strategically investing in both notes and commercial real estate nationwide. With over half a billion dollars in assets under management, PPR has provided individuals with a steady source of truly passive income since 2007 without ever missing a payment. Check them out at investwithppr.com. Again, if you're looking to get monthly passive income from an experienced team with a strong track record, go to investwithppr.com today. And remember, if you're watching this video on YouTube right now, don't forget to like this video, the little thumbs up button, subscribe to the Bigger Pockets channel, and leave a comment below if you have questions for us or the guests, specifically Alan Corey. Uh, ask them down below in the comment section. We'd love to see the YouTube channel growing. So if you're watching this here, let us know. All right, with that said, I think it's time to get into today's show. Anything you want to add before I introduce the man, the myth, the legend, Alan Corey? Anything? No, but this was a good one. I had a lot of fun with this recording. I think we got into a lot of life stuff, not just real estate, but the real estate stuff we talked about absolutely applies to the life stuff we talked about. I thought this came out great. Yeah, agreed. Without further ado, let's get into the interview with Alan Corey. 
All right, so today's show, we have Alan Corey. Alan was a huge inspiration in my uh, life for real estate investing. I read one of his books early on, and that really spurred me on toward the financial independence. And in fact, the book was called A Million Bucks by 30. And so I was like, all right, that's a good goal. So I set a goal of a million bucks by 30. And at 30 years old, I crossed the million dollar mark. So that was cool. Interesting enough, he has been on, I think, six reality TV shows. We'll probably talk about that today, uh, including Queer Eyes for the Straight Guy. He was one of the people being looked over there. Longtime investor, real estate agent, started in Brooklyn, over 100 deals, once had dreadlocks, and a lot more. So you're going to hear more about Alan today. But that said, let's bring him in. Alan Corey, it is an honor and a long time coming. Welcome to the show. Hey, thanks. Uh, I appreciate it. This has been a goal of mine is to be on your show. So uh, I, I feel like I've achieved something. It's like buying a new house. Also, I um, told way too many people that I was the best guest you've ever had. I, I really kind of 10X'd <laughs> my appearance uh, today. So I've got to live up to that. Yeah. This is great. Oh, I, I like your uh, your prophesying. You, you just know it's going to be amazing. So we, we got this. We got this. All right. So I want to start with the most important question of all. Really, like it's the heart of who you are reality tv <laughs> what what the what the heck is that about i you jerry springer queer eye for a straight guy where did this stuff come from like what were you where that life come from i i moved to new york right after college this was 20 years ago a different lifetime ago i don't even really recognize that person that i saw on tv but um i wanted to be a stand-up uh comic and that's sort of like the when reality tv was sort of a new thing and so they go cast Real people is what they call it, but really they just cast comedians to be on the show <laughs> if you're a male. And then if you're a female, they'll go to the modeling agencies and, and cast from there. So that's sort of my my way on to TV. And I got to tell you, I make way more money real estate investing than I did as a reality <laughs> TV show guest. Yeah. Yeah, I can I can definitely see that. So if you guys want to see Alan with dread, what, like dreadlocks and we got him on Jerry Springer and all this stuff, go check out. We'll actually put a link in the show notes at biggerpockets.com slash show 466. Uh, so check it out there. We'll put a link. Also, you can just go to YouTube and search Alan Corey. But uh, it's pretty amazing, man. It's, that was uh, fun. And then, uh, yeah, one of the times they, they filmed two shows, uh, I was on the restaurant with Rocco Despirito as a waiter, immediately followed by being made over on Queer Eye for the Straight Guy as a real estate investor. So I got a lot of hate mail when they had two shows back to back. That's funny. Oh, yeah. Yeah, working for pennies and the other where I was making, you know, some dough flipping home. So uh, are you it, saying it, that TV is not 100% accurate? Alan, I don't, don't, don't burst my bubble here. All I got to say is when I was doing this 20 years ago, it was, uh, I, I was playing a part in some ways. Yeah. I hear you. All right. It might've changed. Yeah. So, so, so how did that lead into, for those who haven't read a million bucks by 30 or the new book, which is, I got it right here, house fire. So you can achieve financial independence and retire early, which is phenomenal. Like, how did you get into real estate? Like why, why real estate? What was your first entrance? Yeah. So I was in the clubs performing every single night from about midnight to 3 a.m. And then during the day, I was working as a tech support guy, nine to five. And I was just wasn't sleeping. I wasn't, you know, because I, I was just always working either at, at my day job or, or in the clubs. And I I was like, I've got to focus on comedy full time. I, I just I'll never be able to live this dream. And so I bought every single book that I could on financial independence and retiring early and wealth creation and working for yourself. And I just gravitated to the real estate books and just kept reading those and like, oh, this makes sense. If I buy a couple properties, if I'm a landlord, I'll have some cash flow and that, that I can quit my day job and I can focus on comedy the full time. 
And uh, by the end of the hour here, you'll understand why my comedy career didn't work out as you get to know <laughs> me. But I fell in love with real estate more than comedy. So I kept my day job and then I started doing real estate at nights and the weekends and eventually made the switch to doing that full time after acquiring a few properties and, and haven't looked back. Yeah. So what was the very first deal you did? So the very first one, I, I bought a property in Brooklyn, New York for $99,000. I was living in Spanish Harlem at the time. I had never been to Brooklyn. I had $10,000 in my account and I was like, there's 10% down payment. I need to buy something for $100,000. And there was zero apartments for $100,000, even back in 2001, 2002, when I was looking but there was one property for $110,000. And I said, you know what? I got to get them down to $100,000 or below. And I'm buying this property. I go over there. I show up for the first time, get off the subway. There's a guy sleeping on the doorstep, tell, asking me for money, telling me some story about how he just got out of jail. And, you know, most people would be like, maybe this is not the best primary residence or the best neighborhood. But to me, I'm like, hey, this is all I can afford. I'm buying it. And it was a one bedroom apartment. I hung up a very heavy curtain in the living room and I called that a second bedroom, got a roommate and house hacked my first apartment. And then I, I started house hacking every 12 months after that and, and bought a, a duplex down the street eventually after that. And then just it just sort of. You know, I had a goal. I was going to buy a property, one property every 12 months. I did that for five straight years. And now I try to buy multiple properties every 12 months. Yeah. All right. All right. So let's, let's dig in a million bucks by 30. So how did you get, we'll start with that one. It's your older, much older book now, but how did you get, how did you become a millionaire at 30? Well, so I, it was a combination. It was, it was really before the FIRE movement, but it was really the, the Lean FIRE principles, uh, which is FIRE stands for Financial Independence Retire Early. I lived on uh, 39% of my $50,000 salary, and I invested the rest. I was in 401k matches, the IRAs, uh, contributions, but really saving for, up for down payments. And the big catalyst was my second purchase, that duplex which was uh, also in Brooklyn and three bedrooms on each side. And I rented it out to five comedians. I lived there and I had five comedians, each paying 600 to 750 bucks a month. We called it the house of clowns. And I was once that, that second property, I, I was had all my mortgage covered and I was profiting $2,000 a month in cash flow, And that was more than my day job. So that allowed me to, to quit my day job just after my second house hack. And that actually just speaks to the value of house hacking, right? I mean, David, you and I talk a lot about this, but, and Alan, your book talks a lot about, it. I mean, just the idea of you don't need 500 properties to be able to quit your job and retire early. Like if you do it right, if you live in inexpensively and you buy a house hack, you could potentially do it right away, right? Yeah. And then that's what my newest book, I, I, and, and as a realtor and my clients, I just, I, I outlay just one rental property can really change your life. But if you want to do two or three, you know, a lot of people get scared because they're like, I don't want to be a real estate mogul. I'm not you know, trying to be Monopoly man. And I'm like, I, you don't need to. You just buy a couple you know, or just start with one and you're going to see how it changes your life and your finances. And you know, you're going to get the bug like the rest of us. Everyone you know, uh, who listens to this podcast probably knows what that feeling is. And, and then you just grow from there and, and it, it just becomes a passion. Something I really like, Alan, about what you talk about is uh, it's sort of making the connection between a practical thing in your life, like a bill, a mortgage, an internet bill, a car payment, and investing. And you've really created this cool reward system where you tie the hard work that goes into saving for a property, going through the process of finding it, closing on it, and having cash flow 
with rewarding yourself that you've now eliminated a bill for the rest of your life because you tied that cash flow to that bill. Can you expand a little bit on on how that works and how you found success helping create that link in people's minds? Yeah, sure. So the FIRE sort of uh, method is you, you want to save up 25 years of whatever expenses are in your life. So say you have a $150 internet bill, I'll multiply that by 12, that's $1,800 a year. The FIRE method and, and rules are, and the 4% rule is, hey, take 25 years of that, which is $45,000. And if you just put that in stocks and do a safe withdrawal rate of 4% every single year, you'll have that internet bill covered for the rest of your year. And you do that for every single bill in your life. I take the real estate approach. And I say, wait a minute, I don't want to save up $45,000 before I retire. How about I take $25,000 and go buy a $100,000 property that cash flows me $150 a month. And then, so once I do that, I tie every single cash flow. Oh, this, this house goes to this bill and $150 I've got free internet in life. And then when this, you know, when this house is paid off, then I can reallocate that $150, which will probably be more like $600 now because I don't have a mortgage to other bills in my life. And so I did that recently for a car. If I wanted to go buy a Tesla, that's $40,000. Rather than saving up $40,000 and buying a Tesla in all cash, I look online and say, okay, wait a minute, this is going to be a $500 mortgage payment. Why don't I take $40,000 and go buy a house in all cash or leverage a house, you know, buy a $250,000 house with that $40,000 payment that cash flows me $500. And pretty much, you know, that's House Fire, my new book, where it's just, Every bill in your life, let's go buy a property and pay that for the rest of my life. And what's great about it is the older I get, and I'm not living on a budget. Every other retirement plan has you living on a budget. This one, my budget gets bigger every year because properties go down. You know, I'm paying off the principal every year. My rent you know, that I charge goes up every year and they appreciate in value. And instead of giving $40,000 to a car company, I'm giving $40,000 to myself in, in, in terms of equity in a home. And it's, it's just recycling the money. And, and it's, a, like you said, a mindset where you know, any toy I want in my life, any expense in my life, I, I get a house to pay for it. Here's a few points I love about what you're saying. First off, if you're bad at saving, this is even better for you. Because if you're not good at saving and you force yourself to buy real estate, especially if it's cash flowing real estate, you're never going to run out of money. You literally can't go spend the 40 grand that you put down on that property because it's tucked away in something that's getting you a return. Second thing is that you can't run out of money like this. Because as long as the property's cash flowing, when you buy that car, it's not like you decided, do I want a house or a car? You got both. You got a house that paid for a car. When that car is paid off, you can go buy another car, right? You will always have a car for the rest of your life. Another thing is that certain things that we like to spend money on, there's this trade-off between what I want and what I know is best. It's the whole broccoli or ice cream thing. Typically, a really nice car, nice clothes, a vacation feels a little bit like ice cream. Investing in bonds or real estate feels like broccoli. Well, when you're buying depreciating assets like a car or clothes or whatever with real estate, it limits the damage it can do to you because your initial investment continues to appreciate while the stuff that you bought with it can go down. And then last that I love is that when rates are really low like this, I think a guy on my team just bought himself. He's been a loan officer with me for six months or so, and he's doing really well. He just bought himself a Tesla S. Is that the expensive one, Brandon? Yeah. Yeah. The X is probably more, right? Okay. Maybe it was the X. His car payment's 850 bucks a month. It's a lot for a, a young person. However, the 
price of the car versus the actual payment is really not as bad as what I was expecting when I heard how much the car was. So when rates are low like this and you're borrowing money to buy something that typically we wouldn't advise you to, like an expensive car, you're getting more car for the money is basically what I'm getting at. And then every year that what you're getting in cash flow theoretically is going up so that even if the car is going down in value, you're still not losing money. So there's a ton of ways that what you're talking about makes so much sense. And I wish every young person would hear this as you start off buying all these assets and then your assets fund the fun stuff you want. Brandon, you have anything to add there? Well, I was going to point out that uh, that's what I did with my te- my Tesla Model X. Is the payment was going to be like $900 a month. And so for years, I wanted one. I mean, for several years, I was like, oh, I want a Tesla. But I told myself, I refuse, even though I, maybe I could have afforded the payment, but I just refused to buy it until I bought, had an asset buy it for me. So then I went and bought this triplex here in Maui back a you know, year and a half ago. And the thing produced like $2,000 a month in cash flow. I was like, all right, there we go. So then I bought the Tesla. And then I flipped a house. I made 45 grand. So I went and bought a Tesla Model 3 just in cash for, for my wife. Um, and so both of those were assets or, or business, or whatever. So I didn't get sucked into that lifestyle. Uh, early on, I mean, and this goes back to the whole fire thing. And I want to, I want to dig in this a little bit more, Alan is like, if I like early on in my career, I said, similar to you, I said, I needed 3000 a month to be able to quit my job. Like that was my number. It wasn't a lot. And I lived in a small town and I was super conservative and cheap. And so I needed three grand. So I was like, okay, what do I need then? Well, if my average house is making me a hundred bucks a month in profit or average unit, I need to see 30 units. And I just went on a quest to go buy 30 units and I just bought 30 units and I quit my job after that. Like it's, it's not a super complicated thing. It helps with analysis paralysis because I've got a lot of clients and, and, and friends who sort of just freeze. And it's easier when you're like, Hey, what bill do you want to pay? Okay. You found a house that, that cash flows you $200. That's going to cover your phone and your water bill or whatever it is. Then, then yeah, pull the trigger, make the offer. Like that, it made the criteria that much easier. And and then you just, just go through your next bill. Like, okay, well this one pays for your electric bill and the next one's going to pay for your water bill. But Hey, we made progress and let's just keep the ball rolling, the momentum going, the flywheel, you know, it's just sort of feeds upon itself after, after a while. And it becomes fun. And then once you run out of bills, you, you, you have to invent bills like, like Tesla payments. Yeah, exactly. Then you just got to buy more. Yeah, you do more and more, which again, goes back to your point is that's great. Is if you can start from this position of like living low, like low expenses, you start there, then you bring the asset up to that level. Then you can rise the two together for indefinitely. I mean, then you can move to Hawaii and have a $2 million house and two Teslas and all this cool stuff. And now I didn't like when people see that of my life today and they like, I look like just the typical rich guy. Like the reason I'm here is because I lived in an alleyway in a duplex that I house hacked and I lived for free. And then as I made more and more and more money after over the last 10, 15 years, I've been able to rise to that. And so I think people see the outcome. They see the social media and they see the, the fancy cars and houses, but then they try to go and get that lifestyle before they have the asset to pay for it. And that traps them to a job they don't like for the rest of their life. And I, for those in that position right now, you know, you might have student loan debt. You might have a car note. I'm anti paying those off. I'm like, you can, you can pay, save up the $25,000, $50,000 to pay off your student loans. Go save it up and, and buy a house that, that covers that, that student loan payment. Because what's going to happen in 10 years, you're going to have that loan paid off and have a house that's one third paid off, or, or you can just pay it off. And then you're starting from zero, saving money again. And it's going to be another 10 years before you save enough to go buy a house. So just sort of get off the sidelines, go buy a house to pay off whatever debts you have right now, rather than paying off the debts, then go buy a house. And I'll say this is something every single wealthy person, at least that I've come across in my life, they all have it in common. 
I mean, it's literally just they spent their money on assets. Now, sometimes it's a business. Here, it's often real estate. There's other people that understand different asset classes than us. Some, some of them even do it well with stocks. But that's what they did. And it, and it creates this incentive structure in your brain. Like, that's what I do. I basically look at all the money I make goes into real estate. What comes out of real estate typically goes back into another form of real estate, right? So I make money and I put it into flipping houses or buying short-term rentals. And I take the cash flow from those things and put it into long-term, safer stuff. At what comes out of the end of that funnel is all that David actually makes to live off of. That's how I look at it. That's my real income that's coming in. And I don't even think about the active income that I'm earning. So I think just like you do, Alan, if I I want that thing. I've got to get at the end of my funnel enough coming out. And it forces you to be disciplined. It forces you to be creative. It forces you to have a vision for how you're going to make all these pieces work together. But that's all healthy stuff. Isn't that what every great you know, mind that we look at has found a way, like, how do I get from where I am to where I want? You want to become a great stand-up comedian. You want to be great at fitness. You want to get a great degree from a great school. It's, it's a similar mindset people have. And so I love that you're sharing this message of be disciplined early, buy assets, let assets appreciate and let them fund the lifestyle you want. It's really the best way to get on the property ladder. And then another step I'll take that to, if you're thinking about the wealthy mindset, it's really using leverage and mortgages. A lot of people are scared to buy homes and they want to pay them off as soon as possible, pay them in all cash. And the way I look at it is, you know, you're buying a house that you think is going to go up in value possibly, or you think it's a good buy for whatever, uh, uh, you know, criteria you evaluated it. Let's assume you bought a hundred thousand dollar house in all cash. Well, if you think that's good, why don't you buy four of them, right? Why don't you go buy four homes with $25,000 each? It's the same $100,000 and you spread it out across four homes. You're actually spreading out risk. You're not creating risk for yourself because you're getting the home appraised when you buy it with a mortgage. You have a real estate agent typically involved holding your hand. You've got all the, the bank is the most conservative partner you can have. And if they're going to prove it, one, they think that house is worth the value that you're buying it. Two, they think you can afford that house because uh, they're not going to give you a mortgage if they, if you can't afford that house. And then what happens is 10 years, if the property goes up $10,000 or 10%, instead of making $10,000 on your $100,000 house, you made $40,000 because you have four $100,000 houses. If the rent goes up a hundred bucks, you know, instead of down making $1,100 a month, you're making $1,400 a month or whatever, you know, it, it, you're scaling your, whatever interest is, whatever your properties, you're scaling your wealth, you're scaling. And I look at it as you're reducing risk while you're scaling your wealth, which why wouldn't you do it? Yeah. And that it works in reverse too. When the property loses value, if you put 20,000 into it and it drops 20,000 in value, you've lost a hundred percent technically of your investment. What makes real estate different is typically your cash flow doesn't change when the property loses value. And this, I have a, like a bee in my bonnet over this issue. Cause I hear a lot of equity traders bring up the same fact and they're like, Oh, real estate appreciates 3% a year, but I can get you 8% in the stock market. And it's very misleading because you can't take out a mortgage to buy stocks and stocks don't give you cash flow. They're only looking at an aspect of how real estate builds you wealth, isolating just the appreciation that you see, ignoring the stuff you're saying, like the supercharged leverage that you're getting a better return and the safety that comes from it. You also mentioned another hot button topic I'd like to get into. It's this debate right now that should you pay off all of your debt because there's a crash coming or should you take on more debt because rates are really low and inflation is coming? And I kind of wanted to throw that question to both you, Alan, and Brandon, where you stand on on this controversial topic. It's not controversial to me. I'm leveraging. I'm trying to 
get as much debt as long-term debt as possible. I tell everyone, stop making the extra 25 bucks, 30 bucks payments on your mortgage payments. You know, don't round them up. Don't do the bi-weekly payment program. That, that just is insane to me. And, and the way I explain it is, you know, when I walk into an antique store and I see a sign that says like ice cream for a nickel, right? Like when was ice cream a nickel? You know, it, apparently that day existed. And due to inflation, you know, ice cream's $3 now, right? So, what that $3 ice cream cone in 30 years is going to be $9. So your money is worth the most, has the most purchasing power right now. So you want to go have as much of it as you can in your pocket, not making extra payments on this debt so that you can accumulate as much money to go buy a, more debt, you know, buy more assets that have debt. And then what happens is if you have a thousand dollar mortgage payment over 30 years, it actually gets cheaper over time. You can, you know, instead of buying, you know, paying $3 for an ice cream, go down, pay $9 a mortgage with the same dollar 30 years from now. And you're actually saving money in, in some regards by spending it in tomorrow's dollars. Money's always going to worth more today than it is in the future. So then that ice cream never becomes more expensive for you because you're always paying it with rent that appreciated over time. I like that. I generally agree. My own personal philosophy, I agree with exactly that. I like leverage. I like debt. I think when you can get debt locked in at 2 or 3%, 4%, 5%, like if you can make more than that, you know, it's a, it's a math thing. But like I've talked about on the show before, one of the concepts that changed my uh, thinking a little bit on this is this, I, there's a book called Life and Air. It's one of my favorite books, like Millionaire with the Word Life. And they make this concept in there, this idea where if the goal, the goal of the game should determine how you play the game. And so if the goal is to quit your job, have financial independence as quick as possible to become wealthy, which is a lot of people's goals. And if that's the goal, then there are certain rules you play by, like leverage will get you there faster. I think we all believe that if you leverage real estate, you're going to get wealthy faster. If your goal is to reduce all risk in your life and to live the safest life possible and to have minimal chance of ever having a, a a heartache or any risk, then maybe, maybe you know, the Dave, Ram Dave Ramsey model is better for you. Well, to me, that's risky. The Dave Ramsey method is risky because uh, if I have four homes for that same $100,000, if there's a vacancy, then I'm still getting some cash flow. If I have one house and then uh, there's a vacancy, I'm getting zero. What, how is that not riskier? And also every property I buy, I, I say it comes with an imaginary lottery ticket. Right. I, and that is appreciation that I don't have control of. And I've hit the lottery three times on these properties and made a, a million dollars off three different properties because I leveraged my money and I just started buying everywhere and spreading out and getting more of these imaginary lottery tickets. I never bought a property because I thought it was going to appreciate. I bought it because it paid a bill. And then apparently, you know, and then if the neighborhood changes, there's a new park going in, something, you know, some new development that I had no insight on, then my wealth tremendously explodes. And that, that was no, I, I can't do that if I'm buying one house and two and having it paid off. Why don't I not turn that into 10 or 20 and have those imaginary lottery tickets? Yeah, there's another component to this that never gets brought up. And it's the assumption that when you pay off your mortgage, you own it free and clear. But the mortgage is one tunk of the whole pie of what you 
pay when you own a property and it's often not even the biggest and it's piece. not the biggest yeah <laughs> it's not the biggest and that's what's annoying is they're like oh once you pay your property off you have no expenses no not true you have tax you have insurance you have property management and your freaking expenses and capex and maintenance are so much bigger than your mortgage anyway go ahead brandon i don't want to just rip on dave ramsey here. i actually like dave ramsey for a lot of reasons but it, dave ramsey's like instagram the other day had this quote that said 100 percent of all foreclosures were with people with mortgages and I was like, that's not entire." like, I get what he's saying, but I go to the comments and everyone else calls him up for it too. What about tax foreclosures? What about like all the other reasons you could lose your property? Like primarily taxes or the thing, you know, you don't have insurance on the property. Like there's a lot of things that go into that. A hundred percent of bank foreclosures, you could say, well, a hundred percent of foreclosures were from homeowners. You can't have a foreclosure <laughs> unless you have a mortgage to have a bank foreclosure. If, if you're buying, buying old rentals, and the, and the market goes down $10,000. I bought a $100,000 house. It's worth $75,000 now. I don't care. My rent doesn't go down 75%. There's a 12-month lease. So there's always a 12-month lag on my leases based on property values. But never, you know, maybe my lease stays the same. But I, I, it's not like, you know, if, if there's a market crash, you actually have more renters because people are losing their homes or people aren't moving or they can't afford a home. And so it creates more renters and more demand. And so to me, this... I like to spread out my risk and you do that by buying more properties. It's like a belay. When you're climbing the mountain and you slip, you'll fall a little bit, but it will catch you. You won't fall all the way to the bottom. That's what cash flowing real estate does. In the stock market, in securities and equities, there is no belay. If you're at $80 a share and it drops to $20 a share in a day or two, there was nothing you could do to stop that as opposed to real estate. I don't care what it drops to. Even if we have the scenario that hasn't happened in my lifetime where rent was $1,200 and it drops 30% all the way down to $900, maybe I went from cash flowing $200 a month to negative a hundred bucks a month, I can probably swing a hundred dollars a month. That it just this doesn't get brought up enough when people are comparing these investment vehicles. And so I really appreciate you doing that here. And that tenant, if you're losing a hundred dollars a month, that tenant's probably paying $150 in your principal pay down. So in some ways, so some ways you're 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 not losing money. It's just not cash flow. You're you're gonna it's future money. You're paying yourself in the future. Well, let me, let me, let me dive into this topic a little bit uh, deeper that we've been talking about, but debt versus investing, you know, like cl clearly I think all three of us, we utilize leverage and debt. And when it comes to 5% student loan debt, 3% student loan debt, mortgages at three or 4%, this all makes sense. What about credit cards? What would be, I don't want to ask each of you guys this. You got $25,000 in credit card debt right now. You're paying 25% interest on this money. Do you pay that off first or do you go invest in real estate with it? What do you guys think? Alan? Uh, I, I think credit card is the one thing, the consumer debt that you got to pay off first, only because that's going to allow you to get better terms on a mortgage. And that's just, that can spiral out of control. And Dave Ramsey calls that playing with snakes. That, that, that is the one, the one debt I would say, focus on your credit cards and then everything else, buy an asset to pay for it. Especially, I would second that because credit card debt's typically ridiculously high. It's You can't have this one-size-fits-all solution that most people find comfort in in life. Well, should I just pay off all my debt? Well, all your debt could be a 1.5% interest rate on student loan versus an 18% interest rate on your credit card. So I think there's some common sense that should go into it. And Alan, you made a great point. There's a passive investment to paying off credit card debt because it will help you get a mortgage. It will imp improve your DTI and your credit score, which allows you to go buy real estate. And the last little cherry I'll throw on the top of this is when you house hack, which all of us here are huge you know, disciples of house hacking, you're also getting rid of something. You're getting rid of your mortgage payment that you, or your uh, rent that you're going to have if you're not owning real estate. 
And saving $1,000 on what you would have made towards a house payment, you're not getting taxed on money you save. It's almost the equivalent of getting 1300 or 1400 in cash flow after you lick a lot of the taxes. You know, if I, if I get one more, one more piece of the credit card thing, I'll say I actually, so if it was just about the money, I would actually be different than both what you guys said. And I would say I'd rather have somebody go and invest in real estate than pay off 25000 But I'm going to, uh, before people probably will take that and run with it. The reason I say that is because the knowledge gained from actually taking action to invest in real estate is going to benefit you way more than 25 grand in your life. The reason though, then I would, uh, but I would still side with you guys on this point, And I think we all would agree to this is like when you have $25,000 in credit card debt or 50,000, that is a symptom of a greater problem most of the time. And everyone here that has that is, is yelling at the, the car stereo right now saying, that's not true. I had this unique experience or, you know, I had this medical bill. I had something, but there's usually still something in your life that made that happen that I think you need, to, most people need to fix. Again, there is the rare, like you had a crazy medical thing that just had to go on credit card. But I know for me, there was a point where I was like 50 or $60,000 in credit card debt. And that was maybe even more at one point. Like, and some of that was house flip stuff, but some of that was because like I was making, I was spending a thousand dollars more every single month than I was making. So by paying off credit card debt, you change your identity from one who is living in the moment and living for your wants and your desires to somebody who lives with intention and with purpose and with, with goals in mind. Uh, and so that it makes you a different type of person, which will then benefit you on real estate. So anyway, just some thoughts there. Anything you want to add on that? I think that's like the training course to handling money and understanding leverage. Like if you, if you have the willpower to pay off your credit card bills, regardless of the amount, you're going to have the willpower. You'll have, it's, it's that exact same willpower to be successful in real estate investing. Like it's, it's the same, you know, mindset really. So maybe put it a different way. Like I've often heard the phrase and I love this is if you can't donate, if you can't like tithe or charity, or whatever, 10% of your income when you're making two grand a month, you won't do it when you're making 20,000 a month or 200,000 a month. I would say that same principle applies. If you can't live within your means at 3,000 a month, you're not living with your means at $30,000 a month either because it is a mental thing, not a math thing. And I think the thing with credit cards is, is like every most other debt, student loans, car notes, you're paying some of the principal, but credit cards make it really easy to just pay the interest. So you're never getting ahead. So that's, if, if you wanted to take my house fire approach, go buy a house, but make sure that cash flow pays more than the minimum, more than the interest payment that you're actually paying down the principal. Otherwise, you're never going to get out of that credit card debt. You're just on a treadmill. There's a lot of variables to this. There's also the side of, well, if you pay off your credit card, are you just going to go run up the debt again once it's been paid off because you can't be trusted with credit cards? So you don't know how many times that like I worked, you know, I worked at a bank for a year, year and a half back in the day. I was like a banker that gave people credit cards and open checking accounts and all that. And numerous times I would find a way to use like home equity. Like I'd get a home equity line of credit and we'd pay off their credit cards. And I was, I was a good banker. So I'd work with them and I'd, I was like, I had all these ideas on how I could help them. And then three months later they'd come in and they're like, well, what else can you do for me now? I'm back to my 35,000 in credit card debt again. And I'm like, we just did a refi in your house to pay it off. Like, what are you doing? I don't. Yeah. And it's, it sucks. And it just goes back to like that debt is often a mental thing then. And it, like, especially consumer debt, it's a mental game. It's a mental sickness and illness for, for many people. So uh, you got any advice, Alan, on, and I want to go back to your story here in a second, but any advice on people like getting into that mentality where they can sacrifice more now, where they can live more within their means. The people who are struggling with that right now, what do you got to say to them? I always trick my brain. I'm like, hey, Alan, what, 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 I give my, my, myself a gift in 10 years. What would that gift be? And, you know, it's like, oh, well, maybe it's 
no credit card debt. You know, okay, let's 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 pay future Alan. My you know gift. The present Alan's got to work to gift future Alan that credit card debt. Okay, well let's make up a plan. Two hundred dollars a month. Go go here and go there. Maybe it's I would go to my when I had a day job. I had the HR take some of my like. 25% of my savings or my income and automatically deposit to one bank. And then 50%, it would go to another bank across town that I didn't have access to. And the other 25% would go to like retirement accounts. And then what I would do is it wasn't in my account. It wasn't in my daily account. If 50% of my paycheck was just going to this bank on the other side of Manhattan, and it was a pain in the butt for me to go to. And I didn't have, I didn't want to create an online login, didn't want to have the debit cards. I actually had to go there in person. And then all I did was I, I give my gift to myself every January 1st. Uh, well, the bank, whenever the bank would open January 2nd or 3rd, uh, I would walk over there, say, how much do I have in my account? Because I'm, I need to go buy a house with it. And that, that, that's, that's what I did for my first one was here's $10,000. Okay, my budget is $10,000. That's 10% of $100,000. The next year, it was $25,000. Okay, let me go buy a house with that. And, you know, it was that that's I would just play these games and be like, oh, hey, good looking out for you, Alan. You know, <laughs> Thank, thanks for doing that. And so I, I, I knew if it was in my account, I'd go spend it. I'd do something dumb. I'd go drink, you know, with my buddies. But if I'm like, hey, guys, sorry, I only got 20 bucks tonight, but I'll go out. You know, it was, it was fun. You know, I didn't feel like I missed out on anything. I didn't feel like I was living in poverty. And then those beers and those happy hours, like, how are you doing this, Alan? How are you buying these houses? And it's like, oh, well, I, I hide the money from myself, you know, and pull it out once a year. Dude, I play that exact same game in so many areas of my life. Like money, like the same, like the same thing. If I set it aside, I mean, the government does it too, right? Government takes the tax money from your paycheck first because they know that then like you're not going to spend it. So I do the same thing. I, I have so many random accounts. If I true story, this is going to be like like a weird flex. But the other day, my uh, finance guy uh, Micah says who helps with all my finance stuff. He gets a letter from the bank, uh, Bank of Hawaii, and they say your account is going to start charging you ten dollars a month if you don't use it. You haven't used it in a year. They're going to charge you $10 a month or whatever. And I'm like, and I, so he's like, Hey, Brandon, what do you want to do with this account? I don't even know what account it is. It must be your personal one there. And I said, I don't have a personal account at Bank of Hawaii. He's like, well, you got this letter. So I was like, well, you look into it. So he calls up his banker, the banker friend that we have at the branch, finds out there's $25,000 sitting in this thing. That's been there for at least like three years. Like was a, like, cause I said, I opened it over on Oahu. I have no memory of this at all. <laughs> like, I mean, I know I lived in the town where that was at, but I, so I just, I must've gotten money from something. I sold something and I put it into that. I opened a bank account and was like, Hey, this would be for my future. And then totally forgot about it. It's like finding 20 bucks in your jeans. That's pocket. I was just going <laughs> to yeah. say, it's like yeah. putting money in your, in your jacket pocket and leaving it there yeah. all winter. And then you get back yep. out. I'm you so glad I'm not the only one that does this. This happens to me all the time. I just feel so good. You probably took out a loan at bank of Hawaii and funded it with some money and then sold the <laughs> property that the loan but was attached to. Yeah. But the, the point being, I hide money sometimes like that, maybe mm-hmm. a little too well so that I won't spend it. There's, a, I've used this analogy before, but I'll say it real quick. There's a, a movie called Fantastic Beasts and Where to Find Them. It's a Harry Potter spinoff, right? Uh, in there, there's this creature called like the Akami, or I don't know if I'm saying it right, but that expands to whatever size you get it. And so if you put it, it can put it into, so you put it into a, a big room, it expands to the size of the room. You, but you can put it in a teacup and it shrinks to the size of a teacup. And I always say like our budgets are like that, like our, our finances. If you have $2,000 in your checking account, you're going to spend $2,000 your, in your checking account. We all just do it. So the government's like, well, I'm going to take that out first. So by limiting the size of your container, then that little alchemy of your, of your spending will just fit inside that. And you won't even notice it. So taking that two, $300 a month and setting it aside, you won't notice it. I mean, maybe the first month you'll be like, oh, that's a little weird. But 
you, you just don't notice it when you set it aside. So anyway, love that. Oh, by the way, that also works with time. Think about it. It's like Parkinson's law. If you had a whole day to finish some project, you're going to take a day to do it. Oh, true. But if you give yourself, no, I've got one hour to finish this thing. Or if you say, I'm going to buy a real estate deal this year in 2021. Yeah, you'll, you might do it by the end of the year. But if you said, I'm going to buy a property in the next 30 days, like, oh, I'd love to see the action you take in 30 days because you gave yourself a smaller container. You play tricks with yourself. It works. Oh yeah, totally. I always like give myself constraints and deadlines. I find myself getting way more creative and way more productive because I, I can hem and haw for 90 days on a property, but it, that's what's great about 1031 exchanges. You, you, you have a time limit, right? And so and then you make a decision, but you know, so uh, if, if you just do that, you pretend like everything's a 1031 exchange and I got 30 days to invest this or Hey, whatever I have in this account on January 1st, I got to buy a house in January because the faster I buy a house, the faster I can start saving for the second house. You know, those sort of time frames. So I love this. This show is sponsored by Airbnb. Did you know that a long time ago before I ever started my real estate business, I turned one of my first primary residences into an Airbnb? And that's the extra income that I needed from Airbnb that gave me the confidence to go out and work for myself and eventually quit my nine to five job. And now I have dozens of Airbnbs all over the country. I've even partnered up with the old David Green on a recent property in Scottsdale to take our portfolio to the next level. And of course, we hosted on Airbnb. But you don't need to be a full-time real estate investor to start on Airbnb. As a matter of fact, I was self-managing 10 properties while working my 9-to-5 job, so I know anybody can do it. Think about it this way. You're looking for extra income and going on a vacation. Wouldn't it be great to rent out your space and let your property pay for itself while you're gone? I did this one time. I pitched my wife and my roommate because we were house hacking on the idea of renting out our home, and it paid for all of our expenses on a trip to Mexico City. So go and give it a try. It might just change your life just like it did mine. And I really do mean that. Your home might be worth more than you think. Find out how much at airbnb.com slash host. You've heard us talk about it before. High interest rates are crushing real estate investors, leaving even some of the best investors in need of funding now. But with today's liquidity crisis, who can fill the demand? With Fundrise, America's largest direct-to-investor alternative asset manager, you have the opportunity to. Fundrise's new opportunistic private credit strategy was designed specifically for this new market environment. Fundrise supplies high-demand bridge financing on high-quality assets with credit-worthy borrowers. Top real estate investors get the funding they need while you walk away getting paid a healthy interest rate. To date, Fundrise has completed more than $500 million worth of private credit deals with an average net interest of 10.8%, and they've already amassed a pipeline worth more than $300 million. Don't sit on the sidelines. You can take advantage of this unique window of opportunity while it lasts with Fundrise's new private credit strategy. Ready to start? Go to Fundrise.com pockets to learn more. That's F-U-N-D-R-I-S-E dot com slash pockets. This is a paid endorsement for Fundrise. Past performance is not indicative of future results. All investments can lead to loss. You're trying to close on your next rental, so why is your insurance company dragging its feet? With long lead times and never-ending paper forms, it's no wonder it takes forever to finally get a policy. Modern investors deserve better. They deserve Steadily.com. 
At Steadily.com, you'll get fast, affordable landlord insurance available online 24-7 in just a few clicks. You can even get next-day coverage, which takes just minutes, by the way, to obtain. And you can do it all from your phone. Steadily was founded by landlords who created insurance products tailored to the unique needs of this industry. It's their sole focus, and that's why landlords nationwide consistently rate them 4.8 out of 5 stars. So whether you've got a single-family, short-term, or multifamily portfolio, Steadily.com can secure the best coverage at the best price to protect your properties. Discover how Steadily can save you both time and money on your rental property insurance. Visit Steadily.com for a commitment-free quote tailored to your needs today. Tell us a little bit more about the the subsequent houses that you bought using these little mental hacks that you're playing with yourself. Well, personally, I've, I've grown my portfolio. I've been doing this for 20 years. And I wrote this down. I, I had to do research before I came on here because it changes every week because I'm buying and selling things. But currently, I, I have about 69 units personally for about a total of 8 million, 48 single family homes. 21 units are duplexes, triplexes, and quads. And then with some partners, I've got another $20 million worth of property, 94 units, mostly commercial, uh, ranging from 12 to 28 units and some storefronts. And so it's, and David, you might know this as a realtor, you know, opportunity starts presenting itself. I've always been an opportunity buyer. I've, I've had clients find a deal. When I first starting out, I, I didn't have money, but I could find a deal and then I'd go find people with money. Now I'm on the other side of the coins. Some of my clients and friends, they find the deal and they come to me with money. And I'm like the other side of, oh, okay, let's, let's buy these deals together. And, you know, sometimes I take clients and I'm like, Hey guys, this is the house you want to buy. I know it's not the perfect kitchen. Uh, it's not the perfect bathroom, but you're on a double lot and this lot, it, it comes with this lot that's landlocked. And because of that, you can do X, Y, Z. You can build a pool and it doesn't go against your far. You can build a second story here where all the other homes can't. There's just the, 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 the maybe it's, this is like not imaginary lottery ticket. This is real life lottery ticket right here that no one else has seen the value. You need to buy it. And a lot of times they can't pull the trigger. And so I, I say sleep on it. If you still don't want it tomorrow, I'm going to buy it. And that's sort of what happens is I wasn't looking for that property. I wasn't looking for that sort of gold mine, but because I'm out in the road, you know, out hitting the road, taking clients out, looking for myself, I find these things and I'm like, you should buy it. Okay. I'm going to buy it, you know? And, and that's what I love about real estate investing is really kind of finding those opportunities to maximize value. And it's not always just the fix up the kitchen kind of thing. Explain where are you buying today? You're not in New York city anymore, right? You moved down to Atlanta, is that right? Yeah. So I'm, I'm, I'm in Atlanta. I'm, I was born and raised in Atlanta. And after spending 13 years in Brooklyn, came back to Atlanta. And so I just sort of 1031 most of my portfolio or all my portfolio eventually to Atlanta and started continuing to invest in, in and around Atlanta. The winters don't freeze my pipes here. That's what I've learned. We've got, we've got termites here, which New York didn't have a problem with, but our winters do not freeze pipes. So uh, that's been a sort of a relief. And I did recently venture out about an hour outside of Atlanta. And this, this goes hand in hand with one of my clients. He, he found these properties that were individually listed on our MLS. It's really hard to sell like a single family portfolio, at least in our MLS. It's either a single family or you can sell a commercial property. But if you've got a package of 30, 40 homes, you know, you either sell one house and you have to give it really crazy value and everyone ignores it, or you have to sell them all, you know, list them all individually. So I had a client come to me. I've been showing him investment properties. We lost some bids. It didn't work out. And he came to me and he said, Alan, there's this town an hour south from here. And they're selling the homes for $30,000 each. And so 
he would look at it and no, I'm not looking at $30,000 homes, but in the realtor notes, it said must buy 40 of these, you know, here are the other MLS numbers. And so, so these have just been sitting on the market for like a year because everyone with a $30,000 budget, it shows up, but no one has a million dollar budget, right? Uh, um, who's looking at these properties. And so uh, this turned out into a really good deal in that it's really difficult to finance a property that's below $50,000. There's a federal law that, that closing costs and attorney fees can't be a certain percentage of a property value. Usually $50,000 is that threshold for a mortgage company to give you loans. And so we tried to get loans and I said, okay, I'll partner with you. And no one's lending on it. So we went to the seller and said, you, the only way you're going to sell these is seller financing. And so um, he, he understood that. He's been in the business. This guy who's retiring, accumulated 40 homes, and he gave us 15-year seller note with 10% down payment at 7% interest, and it was still cash flowing after that, and it was just a no-brainer. And so the total package was $1.3 million at the end, so we had to come up with $130,000, which is great to buy a $1.3 million portfolio that was seller financed, and it was cash flowing on day one, and now... Two years later, that is worth $2.5 million. So, but what happened was because my name as a realtor showed up on 30 listings in this small town, every single wholesaler in that town, every single real estate agent in that town, whenever they had a listing, they're like, Alan, you've had a buyer for the last 40 properties in this town. Would your buyer be interested in this? Would your buyer be interested in that? And I, you know, I bought another 10, 15 properties off market that way, just because they're like, whoever Alan is, is representing, they're buying these properties. Yeah. This guy's a shark. This is great. All right. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> Can you explain for those who maybe have never heard the term before, who are brand new to this, what what is seller financing and how does that how does that work? What are the benefits of it? Like, explain that concept. Yeah, sure. So um, it's basically a bank, and the seller is going to be your bank. So instead of a bank going through your finances, making sure you're putting twenty percent down or twenty five percent down, that you you have the debts to income ratio, all the formulas and criteria they use to purchase your home. The seller is going to say, hey, I'm going to lend you the home. Um, basically, give me 10% and I'm going to be the mortgager. I'm going to give you the 90% in a mortgage and you just pay that over time. There are some benefits to the, the seller for doing that. One is he couldn't sell his property otherwise, but two, he can um, do installment sales or other sort of rolling in this income. So instead of one big payment, can kind of... I'm not exactly sure the in and outs, but there is some sort of benefits for yeah, him the earning. Taxes the, are a bit less. Yeah, yeah, over time, and and three, it, it doesn't go honestly. It doesn't go on my my credit score. It you know I I bought it in an LLC. It's separated, so when I go get a mortgage somewhere else, it, it's not even on the radar for anyone. And so what we talked at the beginning of the episode, leveraging your money as much as possible, spreading out risks across fifty homes. If ten are vacant, I'm still cash flowing. You know. Kind of thing. If, if you're trying to get in real estate, you have no money. That's your best opportunity. It's really, really the best, and it's usually cheaper than a hard money loan as well. I don't think people think enough about seller financing. I know I don't, but it's and because it doesn't work all the time, and so people just never bother to ask for it. A seller has to have their house paid off in cash to do seller financing. So you're you're going to find these opportunities, find retiring investors, typically guys who have acquired a significant portfolio over time. Their kids have no interest in real estate, and then they're willing to offload it uh, to you. 
Yeah. And I, I, you know, when I I wrote that book a long time ago, the book on investing in real estate with no and low money down. And when I was writing that, I was doing some research on the seller financing because there's a whole chapter on that. And what I found at the time, I don't know if it still holds true, but I bet it does. It was like a third of all homes didn't have a mortgage. And so like, that was a way bigger number than I imagined. So it's possible that a third, and I know a lot of people buy houses for cash today. It's a big thing to, to buy for cash. So it's very possible to still get seller financing. In fact, I was just talking to a buddy yesterday, or yeah, last night at my house here, and he just got a huge deal locked up here in Maui. Um, and it's like a $1.3 million property, but the seller offered to carry. It was like, he could do a, he could do seller financing, but only up to 800,000 because he had a little bit of a mortgage to pay off. And so my buddy's like, okay, so he he's gonna do that. He's gonna get that. And then he brought in a partner to fund the rest. So the partner's bringing in like, I don't know what it is, four or 500,000. The seller's carrying the 800,000 or whatever that number is. And then together, they're just going to flip the house. And so this guy is going to do it for no money down, this huge million dollar plus deal. So it's it's definitely a tool to have in your arsenal and to learn about. I mean, some guys like Gabriel Hamill, who we've had on the show here, that's his entire strategy. That's all he does is seller financing. Just he just butter. kills it. Yeah, it's it's powerful. And then there's ways to look these up in tax records. Typically, I know there's strategies to see um, who's owned their own for over 30 years. They probably paid it off. Out, you know, you can search for out-of-state landlords or if their you know, mailing address doesn't match the property address. There's all these tools out there if you really want to go knock on some doors or do some direct. But that's, that's a fast way to, to get into real estate with no money. 100%. That's so, that's so good. So, all right. So you, you bought this portfolio of like 40-some houses and you like made, I mean, it sounds like you made over a million dollars or you're going to, you're selling it now, right? Like it's over a million bucks off one. Yeah. So I've got it under contract. And uh, so I'm looking to 1031 it now, uh, which is a tax deferment. If I sold it, I would uh, get a lot of, I would have to pay, you know, capital gains taxes. 1031 allows me to avoid that or defer that and roll it into the next property. And so what I've, I've been really interested in, and I've always tried to push myself I always try to buy something bigger, a product type I've never bought before whenever I do a 1031. So um, I'm looking into commercial and specifically something called a net cash flow triple net lease. So triple net is commercial properties that the tenant pays for everything, the improvements, the structure, the roof, any repairs, the rent, the mortgage, or if there is more, or sorry, the rent covers the mortgage and insurance, property taxes. It's just hands off. I know my expenses are just going to be my mortgage payment. So a zero cash flow uh, triple net basically is exactly what it sounds. I'm not going to make any profit. The tenant pays the mortgage or directly. And also these exist in AAA bonded tenants, the best of the best. You have your CVS, your Walgreens, Dunkin' Donuts, Chase Bank. They're a corporate entity is signing on the lease and they sign a lease for 20, 25 years. So even if the property goes dark, which means they close it down, they're still going to pay the 20 year guarantee lease. And so on these triple nets that are zero cash flow, you can get into them with 10% down, 15% down, which is about half of what you typically need. You usually need 30 to 40% down to buy a triple net property. And the way it works is you can, the tenant pays off the mortgage and I, I'm not going to make any money for 20 years. There's a 20 year mortgage, 20 year amortization, 20 year lease. But in 20 years, I'm going to have this huge paid off property. I leveraged it. My 1031 proceeds with a 10% down payment. Also, during that time period, I can write off losses on that property. So as a real estate professional, I'm getting other rental income and cash flow. And this property is going to earn me losses, even though it's not a loss, it's a loss on paper that saves me on taxes. 
on my property. And also allows me to do, they have a pro, all these properties have recapture when you purchase, which means if I put more than 10 or 15% down, they instantly give me back that 1031 proceeds back to me cash-free, almost like it's a cash-out refi. So I can access my 1031 proceeds without paying taxes on it. Fascinating. Yeah, this is something I don't think we've actually talked about on the show before, but I'm more and more intrigued by this idea of owning the triple net lease stuff because of like the lack of management. It's a lot easier. I'm sure I'm going from a 40, 50 houses that you were handling into one of these things. It's going to be night and day difference for your management, I'm assuming. And I'm giving my gift uh, gift to myself for 20 years. I mean, that's the way I look at it. I don't need money now. I don't need the cash flow now. I've, I've got all my other bills still covering my, my the bills in my life. But in 20 years, I'm going to have this paid off whatever triple net corporate entity who will probably sign another 20-year lease and that'll be pure cash flow. Yeah, why, why wouldn't I do that? There's some genius here that I want to highlight because All you're looking genius, at this. David. Yes, All absolutely. Yeah. Well, Alan, <laughs> okay. the minute we brought you on the podcast, yes. it was okay. Thank you. like yeah, a okay. halo that just shines out <laughs> from your entire audio there. <laughs> you're not just looking at cash flow, and that's what I wanted to get at. It is cash flow is what brings a lot of real estate investors into the door because cash flow can replace your job, cash flow can get you out of a bind, cash flow can pay off bills. Everything that we talked about, it's great. It doesn't mean that's where you should stay forever. And cash flow, in my opinion, is oftentimes like training wheels. It keeps you from falling off the bike. It teaches you how to ride it, but it limits how fast you're ever going to go if all you're looking at is cash flow. Alan, you're describing a deal that will net you no cash flow and could save you theoretically seven figures in taxes if you're making it in other areas as a real estate professional. That's a huge, huge win on a deal that other people might just ignore because they're not looking at it from your perspective. So I appreciate you sharing this side. I'm, I'm going to highlight, we're not advocating people buy non-cash flowing properties if they're not in a strong financial position. But as, as you do well with real estate and your financial position becomes stronger, real estate has all these really cool techniques and tricks that you can use to grow the wealth you've already created relatively safely. All right. Two more quick questions before we move on to the deal deep dive. First of all, uh, what's your management life look like? Do you, did you manage all those 40, 50 houses yourself, this, the, all that stuff? Or do you have a management team? Do you hire it out? What's that look like? So I started uh, a property management company and I realized really quickly all my time was to managing the properties and not focusing on you know finding new deals or, or figuring out how to do a deal analysis or, the, or figuring out how to finance it. And so then I grew a property management company and then I slowed it down and offloaded all the properties so I could directly focus more on acquiring new properties. So I've outsourced across three different property managers, depending on where my properties are. Okay. And so then do you say the majority of your time these days is spent as an agent because the property management is looking after all your stuff? Yeah, I would say that, yeah, that's probably 75 to 85% of my day is real estate agent related, which I enjoy. It gets me talking to people, home, you know, buyers, home sellers, and searching for those treasure chests out there that are just waiting to be discovered. Do you think people should get the real estate license when they're getting into investing? I do not. I, I think I side with David on this. There's no really cost savings. Well, let me rephrase that. If you are going to be a real estate agent that helps other real estate investors, 100%. And there's benefits to that because what happens is other real estate agents call me and say, hey, I've got this uh, quadruplex coming on the market. I know you have a lot of quadruplex buyers. You know, Do you want it? And I'll pass it on to my clients. If they say no, I might buy it. So those opportunities are great because I'm a real estate agent, but I am never 
and I do the same to other real estate agents who I know have buyers and sellers in, the, in those markets, but I'll never call that one-off person who's a vester if he's not my client, right? You know, that's just not the best use of my time. And I find that as a real estate agent, if I'm dealing with another real estate investor who's investing with themselves, it's a more difficult process. It's not as easy as they think it is. I have to explain the contract to them over and over again or what, how things work. And and it, they know a lot about real estate, but they don't know a whole lot about a real estate transaction. And if you're, if you're not doing, maybe you're doing it once or twice a year, you're not going to get the reps in uh, like a realtor would doing a hundred deals a year. Yeah. Alan, you just helped me realize why I don't like this question. It hit me like a lightning bolt right now. Why don't we say the same thing to every other component of investing? Are you going to get your contractor's license when you become a real estate investor? Are you going to become a CPA when you become a real estate investor? Are you going to get, are you going to become a full-time property manager? Like it's only with being an agent that this question ever comes up and you're highlighting the exact point is getting the license doesn't make you good at it. You know, getting a license that says you know how to be a construction worker, you have a contractor's license doesn't mean you're skilled at doing the work. It takes reps and most people don't want to put those in. Yeah, like you said, like I, I tried to when I first got into this, I met every plumber, every, every electrician, every handyman, just looked over the shoulder, like, I'm gonna learn how to do this. It always cost me twice as much when I try to do it myself twice as long. And I've learned what we're doing is leveraging skill sets, right? Instead of leveraging money to buy a house, I'm going to leverage other people's skill sets who do this full time and uh, that they're going to do a better job than someone who's doing it part time or learning as we go. There we go. Awesome, man. Well, love it. Love to hear your story and where you've been and what you're doing, but we're not done with yet today's uh, show because first we have to get to the deal deep deep dive. dive. Time to uh, dig into one particular deal that you've done to find some details on the deal. And it's a question and a half, one and a half. What type of property was it and where was it located? This was in Brooklyn, New York. This was um, actually five doors down from that duplex that I bought. The house hack, my second one, the house of clowns with comedians. Okay. And how did you find it? Were you just walking down the street and saw this house five doors down? Yeah, I am the nosiest person ever. And I purposely... Every time I walked to the subway, I would walk a different direction to the subway just because I wanted to go down different blocks, different streets, and every house is under renovation. I stick my head in, hey, what's going on here, guys? Is this going to be a rental? Is this going to be for sale? You know, I, I didn't really have money back, you know, I was 25 years old. I was just curious, like, what's, what's happening? What are you guys doing? And so this was actually the opposite direction of the subway that I would normally walk in, but I, I walked in there and I saw a contractor fixing it up. And so I poked my head in, hey, what's your plans with this? And, you know, real estate investor talking to real estate investor. I ended up talking to him more and more over time. And he gave me a price. And I said, you know what? I'd be interested. Let me see if I can find a way to buy this. Because I didn't have any money. didn't have any cash to buy it. And build up rapport. And this was going to be a finished, renovated duplex. Nicer than the duplex I lived in five doors down. Question number three. Did you ever consider forming a band called Five Doors Down to compete with Three Doors Down? (laughs) Uh, How much much was the property? How much was the property? That was not a real question. How much was the property? The property was, um, he wanted a million dollars for it. And I I believe I negotiated him down to the 990 on it because it was off market. And so I got $10,000 discount. You, sir, that's what... I was going to say, that's why they call you uh, Mr. Chris Voss, like the, you know, the, the FBI negotiator right there. <laughs> yeah, right, 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 right. 
Yeah. We're supposed to ask how you negotiate that price. Is it because it was off market? So you said, Hey, you're saving money on the realtor fees. So give it to me. No, uh, this is how it went down. I went back to my wife and I said, Hey, we're buying this property. This we're no way we can lose money. We're buying it for a million dollars. And she's like, I can't, uh, we're not paying a million dollars for that. And I said, well, you go talk to him. And so she came back and said, I got him down to nine ninety. <laughs> there we go. <laughs> Here's another quick tip for everybody. Something about that million dollar mark is such a big deal in everyone's head. I cannot tell you how many deals we've been trying to get under contract with buyers and the seller insist like we, nobody could get it under contract until I came back and said, "Let's give them a million dollars, but ask for forty thousand dollar credit." Done. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Right off the bat, uh, something about that just million dollar number, one million dollars. <laughs> yeah, yeah. People love the million number. All right. How did you fund it? How do you get a million bucks for this thing? I had no cash. And so what I did is I, I went and did a got a HELOC on my duplex, the House of Clowns duplex. And it, it came in at a crazy number. Honestly, way more than I thought it was worth. But you know, I'm not going to complain. I'm going to take their appraisal. And based on that, I got a $300,000 HELOC credit line. So w- with that, I took $300,000 and for me to be able to buy this, I had to put 30% down. So um, there goes my entire HELOC, 30% down and mortgage the rest. So it was 100% financed duplex. And why I loved it so much was that even with that 100% financing, I was going to cash flow $2,000 a month. And it wasn't the prettiest duplex. It was right underneath the BQE, which is this raised interstate I live five doors down, so I was used to the noise. It didn't bother me. It sounded like an ocean after a while, just the steady white noise. Probably like living in Hawaii, I would imagine. And exactly, um, under an interstate. <laughs> yeah, yeah, under the interstate. And I can't believe I paid a million dollars for this duplex, but it just made sense on paper. I was like, there's there's no risk. We're going to, you know, $2,000 a month, that entire $2,000, I'm not paying myself. I'm going to pay down this HELOC, which is an interest-only loan that had no principal associated with it. My, my HELOC payment, I want to say, was like 600 bucks, 700 bucks. So the other $1,200 was going to work that down. I had a plan that we're just going to pay this off over time. So it was a free, free million dollars is the way I look at it. Okay. Next question. What'd you do with this duplex? So I rented it out for four years. I made, like I said, a pretty, really good cash flow on it. And then uh, when I moved to Atlanta, I saw what a million dollars could buy in Atlanta. I could actually get more cash flow and I could buy more property. So I decided to sell it so I could do a 1031 exchange and I sold it. And this is what happens in New York. This happened to me a few times in New York when I sell a property over a million dollars, eventually have celebrities that come buy it. Barbara Corcoran from Shark Tank bought my first million dollar property in Red Hook. So uh, she bought that for her investment. And that gave me confidence to know what I'm doing. If like, wait a minute, if Barbara's buying my stuff, should I not be selling or am I doing the right thing by renovating and selling to her? And I sold to some of um, like Spike Lee's right-hand men and, and, and guys like that. But this property was sold to Christina Ritchie. She's a, she's an actress, played Wednesday in The Addams Family and uh, usually has sort of a goth character role kind of thing. And I feel like I can say that. I signed a nine disclosure at the time, but then that was so she could immediately the day of the closing, sit out in a press release about it, that she bought it. And uh, who knows if she still owns it now. This was probably 10 years ago, but it was kind of cool to, to meet her at the closing table. And uh, again, I was like, wait, wait, she's buying it. Am I making the wrong decision? You know, Am I doing the right thing? But uh, I was able to buy three quadruplexes in, in Atlanta with that 1031 exchange. So it, it seemed to make sense. I love how it just demonstrates that you like, 
how one deal can lead into lead into another bigger deal, better deal, which can lead into another bigger, better deals, you know, plural. And that's how you build, I call it the stack in real estate, right? It's like you, you start with one and you stack two, then you stack four and eight and, you know, you grow exponentially. And your cash flow increases with that and your equity increases. You can take it from one to the next and then you bump it up again because you fix up that property. And just the whole world of real estate is just so cool because it does that. And that was a great story. So what lessons did you learn from this deal? And well, I should say, what was the outcome? What did you actually totally make on it then? And what lessons did you learn? Yeah, that was uh, the first time I made a million dollars on one property. So that was a, a pure million dollar 1031 exchange money that I, I was able to put on as down payments for, for the other properties in Atlanta. What I love about this is that you didn't trade a duplex for a million dollars. You traded a duplex for three more properties with a million dollars in equity. So you never felt like you were rich, right? Like we were talking about earlier. Yeah. Yeah. Like I always like playing this game. Like ask, ask someone, what are you going to, what would you do with a million dollars? And you know, most people are like, I'd buy a Ferrari, a Lamborghini. I'd go on this trip. You ask a real estate investor and be like, Oh, I'd, I'd buy $4 million worth of property with that. That's 25% down payment. Right? Like I, I I don't get enjoyment buying myself those things. I'd rather go buy a property and, and then... Well, like, then let yeah. your property buy those things, like yeah, we said exactly. earlier in the podcast. Yeah. And it's worth noting that I had no insight that the, that four years was going to create a million-dollar equity. Like I bought the property based on the mechanics of a deal, looking at it on paper. This is going to cash flow me more money than I, than I anticipated. But it was, just, it was going to be a profitable venture. I was happy with $2,000 a month. And then the Brooklyn Nets stadium came. The New Jersey Nets. And that was your Brooklyn lottery Nets. ticket. Yeah, that like was my lottery right? ticket. Yeah, I had no insight on this. I'm not some genius. Uh, you know, there's so many dumb idiots running around the real estate world because there's such a low bar of entry. But I want to be one of those idiots. So let, let's let's just get you know. Lucky, That's exactly you know? right. You, know? yeah. you just you assisted enough tackles. You're going to come up with a fumble if you're in right. the right place enough. I was going to say you can't win the lottery if you don't play the lottery, right? So like, and the great thing about real estate is that you are playing a lottery that pays you money every time you buy a lottery ticket, no matter what. <laughs> and then sometimes that lottery ticket goes to 10X. But right. most of the time it just pays you a nice monthly income and you're like, this is great. Like, <laughs> what a great business. I love this game. This is so good. All right, moving on. Any last final like lessons you can pull out of that, that deal? Well, I think a lot of real estate investors would say a million dollars is too big. Like that's scary. I think a lot of real estate investors would say, I don't have the money. And and then the deal dies there. Right. And so I was like, I got to find the money. You know, I, I, I tried to find partners and no one was interested in buying a property underneath the duplex or underneath the interstate. And I, I tried to reach out, you know, I didn't have a huge network of rich people. I was like 25, 26 years old. I was calling like my ex-girlfriend's father and saying, Hey, you want to buy this thing? And I, I couldn't get any bites. And so uh, I, I just looked inwards and be like, where could I pull equity out of, of the properties I do own? And I got, I, I thought I'd get a hundred thousand dollars off that HELOC uh, line, but I got $300,000 and that's all I needed to, to get the deal done. And so it's, 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 perseverance really and just just not giving up and, and trying and and throwing everything at the wall and see what sticks awesome man love it well let's move on to the last segment of the show it's time for our famous four the famous four is a part of the show we ask the same four questions every week to every guest and we're gonna throw them at you right now so first one favorite real estate investing book other than your own of course 
which is one of my favorite real estate investing books. Every book you've ever mentioned on here, I bought and read multiple times. So there's one book that I maybe I missed, but it's called Evicted by Matthew Desmond. And what it is, is, you know, as we're in a privileged class, if you're able to afford more than one property, you've unlocked an achievement level you should be proud of. And uh, we have tenants and landlords like telling about, you know, I don't want to hear my your story from the tenants because every tenant has a story. And a lot of times you're trying to cut through the BS and like, was that a real story or not? So Evicted is by a New York Times reporter, Matthew Desmond, and he lives with three tenants in Milwaukee, low income, one's in a mobile home park, one's in the inner city, and I forget where the third one is, but follows them around and really gets the truth of their story. And so what happens behind the scenes is really, really interesting to understand what your tenants are going through sometimes, even though the story they tell you might be different, it's mostly because they're embarrassed by the true story. And I just found it very rewarding to understand, you know, we're all in the ecosystem and uh, our view from landlord to tenant is can can be, you know, uh, muddled, but it was really interesting to see the tenant to landlord view and really understand where they're coming from. So I'd recommend that read for for anyone. I, I couldn't put it down. Awesome, man. Yeah, I think that won a Pulitzer Prize. Yeah. So that was a, that was a big book. So I haven't read it though. I'm going to pick it up. Thanks, dude. All right. Number two, David. Number two, what's your favorite business book? So same sort of thing, uh, business book. I have read them all, probably E-Myth's my best, but I want to throw out there, it's sort of a business book. It's called The Color of Law. And really it's it's about segregation. Housing practices created segregation for different um, income groups and ethnicities. And we all know housing is a great way to generate wealth. But if the government strips that from you through blocking out from lending certain neighborhoods, rewarding builders to build white neighborhoods, obviously it's really difficult to get your family on the wealth chain of real estate investing. And um, really it it put marginalized uh, groups 30, 50 years behind a lot of other privileged uh, classes. And I recommend The Color of Law by Richard Rothstein as well as a book to read to understand that. Very cool. Awesome, man. Well, thanks for the recommendation. Number three. Number three, what are some of your hobbies? So I I was a basketball guy like you, David, growing up. And so I'm coaching my my kids basketball. And I got to say, I really enjoy it, but I'm a terrible coach. I, I, I always appreciated those coaches that just had command to practice. And, uh, you know, my, my practices are run with like, while the kids are pantsing each other and slapping each other. And I'm like, time to get in the defensive stance. And you know what? No one learns a damn thing, but I think we're all having fun. (laughs) I love it, man. All right. Last question from me. What do you think separates successful real estate investors from all those who give up, fail, or never get started? So personally, my, for me, it's my pain of regret outweighs my pain of failing. So I never wanted to be that coulda, shoulda, woulda guy. I didn't, you know, I didn't want to be like, Oh man, I, um, I wanted to get in real estate, but I should have bought that duplex 10 years ago. I didn't like those war stories. I, I, I didn't, I didn't want to be that guy. I wanted to be the guy that said, Oh, I bought that, you know, million dollar duplex and I failed that, you know, I, you know, I don't want that. I'd rather be that than someone who didn't try, who didn't put in the effort, who was scared of it. I'd rather try and fail. I believe in myself. And the second reason I think most people don't get into real estate is Georgia football. And, and, and what I mean by that is people are always like, hey, let, let's, let's talk real estate. Okay. Hey, let's um, Saturday at noon. You want to grab lunch? Sorry, man. I got Georgia football game uh, to go to. Okay. All right. Well, 
that's when I'm free, you know, let, uh, you know, if you want to get into real estate and it could be Dallas Cowboys football, it could be whatever the Brooklyn Nets basketball, you know, it's, it's, it's prioritizing. And it's really kind of, if you really want to be a real estate investor, you, you'll put that above whatever the bachelor or whatever it is on TV. Right. Uh, if, if you really, really want these dreams. And uh, so it, it's look, look up on yourself. What are you putting in front of your dreams right now is what TV show. And it's always, you know, something on Netflix or, or whatever it is. So uh, it, it, that that's those are two things that I I, I sort of approach. Do you state. still feel the same about Jerry Springer? Jerry Springer, <laughs> I don't even know if that's on anymore. I did definitely didn't make my parents proud by being on that show, but uh, that was a goal of mine when I was in college, and I, I lived that dream, uh, making up a story to be on Jerry Springer. Because one, it paid for my spring break. They flew me and my friends out to uh, Chicago, pay for our hotels, our food, and you know everything to me is how can I get this paid for? It, well, if, back then it wasn't a house; it was a reality show. Did they yeah. know you made up the story, or did they think you were completely legit? They tried to trip us up a lot of times, and they threatened us, and they said, "We're going to sue you for eighty thousand dollars if you." bust out laughing on the show because it cost us eighty thousand dollars to produce a show which really honestly scared scared us so i went to my best friend and i said listen jeff i'm going to punch you in the face because if i don't punch you in the face we're going to get sued for eighty thousand dollars he's like yeah and i know and so uh <laughs> we got in this huge fight i got to punch. well he dodged my punch i guess i shouldn't have told him it was coming but uh um, steve tackled me tackled me brought me to the ground but then right then and there the producers made us fly home on separate flights so i think they took us seriously yeah Ah, oh, awesome, man. <laughs> love it. Love it. I've been wanting to ask you that question for about 15 years now. <laughs> I've read a million bucks by 30. All right. Uh, with that said, we got to close up shop. David, why don't you uh, ask the final question and then get us out of here? Alan, last question of the day. Where can people find out more about you? Yeah, sure. So um, I have a website and all my social media presence is the House of AC. My initials are AC. My friends call me AC. And um, if you Google the House of AC, you'll learn a lot about air conditionings. So apparently that was very <laughs> bad branding choice on my end. Uh, but idea. yeah, the House of AC.com. And um, I'm, I'm creating two podcasts, one about house fire and one about called Agent Upgrade about how to upgrade your, your real estate agent business. Cool. And the book is called? House fire? The book is called House Fire, uh, Fire Being Financial Independence and uh, Retire Early, How to Be a Red Hot Real Estate Millionaire with a Wealth of Time and Money to Burn. That is out right now. Learn how to pay your bills, kill your bills with House Fire. Awesome, man. I appreciate you. appreciate you coming on the show. This has been a, a dream come true. So thank you. Well, it's been my dream as well. And uh, thanks for having me. It's been, it's been great. And I hope I lived up to my 10X. Maybe that was a 5X uh, effort of guests, but... Uh, you 20X uh, maybe, it, man. 20X oh, awesome. It. Glad to hear it. Glad to hear it. All right. This is David Green for Brandon, the wisdom of Dave Ramsey and the entertainment value of Jerry Springer Turner. <laughs> signing off. You're listening to Bigger Pockets Radio, simplifying real estate for investors large and small. If you're here looking to learn about real estate investing without all the hype, you're in the right place. Be sure to join the millions of others who have benefited from BiggerPockets.com, your home for real estate investing online. The market is changing and finding your way can be tricky. Rates shift, headlines whirl, but your goal hasn't changed. You want financial freedom and the best investors know it's not about timing the market. It's about time in the market. If you're ready to get into the real estate investing game or take your game to the next level, finding an investor-friendly agent is your next step. With BiggerPockets Agent Finder, you can find the right agent in minutes. Just head to biggerpockets.com deals and enter a few details about what and where you want to buy and BAM! 
instantly match with an investor-friendly agent who fits the bill. These local market experts can help you navigate the neighborhoods, analyze the numbers, and take action with confidence once and for all. This free resource is only available at biggerpockets.com deals. Get an agent, get the deal, and get closer to financial freedom at biggerpockets.com deals. That's biggerpockets.com deals to find your investor-friendly agent today. The content of this podcast is for informational purposes only. Past performance is not indicative of future results, and all hosts and participant opinions are their own. Investment in any asset, real estate included, involves risk. Use your best judgment and consult with qualified advisors before investing. Only risk capital you can afford to lose. BiggerPockets LLC disclaims all liability for direct, indirect, consequential, or other damages arising from reliance upon information presented in this podcast.